Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Uh, I think Faith anticipated. I'm sitting there thinking, how on earth do I beat that? I think I've sort of, you know, uh, one after the other, I think I've sort of laughed, wept, been deeply moved. What a wonderful celebration. It's wonderful when you start a family and you have lots of time in the same home. It's wonderful watching a family grow up. And of course, as a family grows up, it needs more space. Eventually, a family needs so much space, they leave home. One of the highlights of that next season is when those that have left home come back again. And you get to celebrate together. And you get to hear the stories of what different parts of the family have been up to. And then not only do you hear the stories, but you get to meet members of the family that you didn't even know were part of the family. That's what Love London's all about. That's what we've been doing this morning. We've been growing up, we've been starting new services, and we get back together again, and we hear something of what God has been doing. And along the way, we get to meet people we didn't even know were part of the family. I've seen people on stage this morning that I didn't even know were part of the family. But a very warm welcome to you all, and particularly if you've never been at the Mermaid before, we're thrilled you're here, and we hope you have a really, really great morning with us. And one of the most moving parts for me of this morning is just hearing some of the amazing things that women and men are doing who are part of Christchurch to work for the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal of the city. And if we had time, we'd tell more stories. That's what we're going to do Thursday. One of the reasons we're doing Thursday, our uh, celebration of everything over at Rudd's Bar, is because we've not got time to tell all the stories now. One of the stories we'll hear on Thursday is of a young artist who has been to refugee camps in Jordan and in Calais and paints incredibly moving portraits of the individuals. Every one of these portraits is full face on because Hannah says, I want to give the voiceless a voice and they don't need to speak to do that. You can just look into their eyes. Another of the stories we'll hear is of a young politician. Right, just in case you've not noticed, there's an election going on at the moment. So we thought we should have somebody who's standing and hear from them and also hear about his broader work in politics, which has been focused, amongst other things, on helping people disagree agreeably. Something I think you would agree is rather important. We'll hear from an academic, a philosopher, who talks in language that you and I can understand. And his work to make the Christian faith both intellectually rigorous and incredibly attractive to his fellow intellectuals and academics from other disciplines. We'll be hearing from a lawyer and her work to help companies make sure that their supply chains are free from slavery so that the things you and I buy are from people who have created them 
in a space where there's dignity and where there's appropriate pay and all the other things that go with that. We're going to hear from a young or a new stand-up comedian. Tells me, you go into stand-up comedy clubs and typically the atmosphere is filled with crude and cynical jokes about sex and politics. And as a follower of Jesus, he says that he is absolutely determined that in the comedy club there must be other ways of making people laugh. There must be wholesome ways of bringing joy. And he's on a mission from God to do just that. We'll hear from others as well. Join us if you can. But it's just a fleeting picture, a momentary shot of what we are doing together working for the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal of the city. This morning, I want to focus particularly on the spiritual renewal. Everything you've seen this morning is actually motivated by one thing. That is the renewal of the spirit. That is men and women who found that their lives have been transformed by an encounter with the Christian faith and more particularly, or should I say personally, with Jesus. And we call it Love London Sunday, partly because we love London, but partly because we want to remind everybody that living out our faith in the city really does matter. You may be unaware, but sometime in the last few years, for the first time ever, humanity has become an urban creature. You and I and our fellow mankind, the majority of us now live amongst concrete. We've come to the cities of the world. It's the first time that's ever happened. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to have influence on this world in the next generation, you know the best place to do that, from the heart of the city. Do you know where all the biggest problems are going to be in the next 30 or 40 years? In the heart of the city. Do you know where those who are motivated by faith should live, if at all possible? in the heart of the city. It's why we call it Love London Sunday. And there's so much that we could look at in terms of spiritual renewal. We've time for just one aspect, one angle, if you like. And I guess I want to get into that by saying this, that a hundred years or so ago now, the great thinkers of European civilization said they had some very good news for everybody. They said, God is dead. And they said the great news about that is that because God is dead, morality and right and wrong will also now fade into the background. And you and I will be able to live free. We will not need to be concerned about how we conduct our life. For with God's death, the chains get broken and we get to live however we want. Well, 120 years on from that, and I think 120 years is a fair amount of time to test the thesis and see whether it's working or not. There's been some very interesting observations from experts, from psychologists. They say that guilt continues to have a powerful effect on our lives. That we've got rid of God, but we've not been able to get rid of that intuitive sense of right and wrong. Is what psychologist Steve Burglar says. He says, in my clinical and coaching experience, 
I've seen countless talented individuals derailed, denied success they struggled long and hard to attain, and disrupted in their interpersonal or relationships, in their interpersonal affairs, by their unwillingness or inability to face guilty feelings. And he goes on to describe this guilt as radioactive waste of the soul. He says you can bury it, but it's guaranteed to leach through the barrier you put between it and your mind, and it will ultimately mess up your life in a variety of ways. So the experts are saying, we've got rid of right and wrong theoretically, but intuitively it's still there. There's now an added challenge though, because whilst we intuitively feel it, we've lost the language to be able to talk about it. And in throwing out God, we now have no way to solve our problem. It's like jumping in a car and hoping it will keep going, but knowing you haven't got the manual with you. And if it breaks down, there's no way of getting it going again. And I want to just share with you a few reflections on this challenge. We've dismantled the superstructure, but we still have the experience, and what do we do with it? Well, let's just ask very quickly, where does this guilt reside, and where does it come from in the city? suggest that the first place that it comes from is a sense which so many in this city experience of not being enough. I should have said, Shakespeare in his play Macbeth talks about guilt as life's fitful fever. In other words, it comes and it goes. It affects some more than others. But you know when you've got it. A sense of not being enough. In our highly competitive world of London... Most of us, at one time or another, since we're simply not enough. One of my favorite actors here, Kristen Scott Thomas, she said this. She said, I live with the fear. This is Oscar-nominated actor. I live with the fear that one day the curtain will open and I will be found on the stage with no clothes on. She, like all of us, suffers from time, from time to time with imposter syndrome. I'm not enough. Sometimes it just works out in our daily lives. We wake up in the morning thinking, I've not had enough sleep. Then we go to bed thinking, I've not got enough done. In the, during the day, we're thinking we're neither thin enough, extraordinary enough, or good enough to keep up with others. And then, of course, it's all compounded by social media. Why is it that we all fall for the social media thing? We all know that social media is everyone looking at people's best moments at their worst moments. And yet we still fall for it. There was a phone that was released last autumn whose producers had set it so that when you took selfies, they were blemish-free selfies. Just removing all those little cracks and kinks. For some of us, of course, it's more than blemishes. But why is it, why is it that we all fall for it? We all know exactly in what is going on. And yet for so many of us, in the uh, polls say two-thirds of us will adjust our selfies or other photographs in order to put ourselves 
in a better light. And all of this can in the end up having an effect on our health, albeit not as seriously for most of us as it did for Sarah Johnson just recently. A married mother of three living in a house worth £12 million, I think we could say that her financial problems were behind her, happily married, she left her house on Chester Square one morning at 6.30 in the morning, walked down to Victoria Station. The CCTV says she walked around the station and up and down the platforms for about an hour before at 7.30 a.m. she threw herself in front of a train on the Northern Line. Here was the coroner's conclusion. She suffered, he said, from guilt. She felt she had not been a good enough mother, and I think that guilt was considerable for her. Not good enough. For others of us, it's not so much not being good enough as not being able to do enough. Professor Wilfred McClay wrote a fascinating essay on this whole subject called The Persistence of the Extraordinary Persistence of Guilt. Why doesn't it go away? In it, he talks about his own struggles with seeing pictures of starving children on television from remote corners of the world, knowing that he should do something about it. But thinking that if he sends money, or even if he were to go himself, he could end up neglecting his own neighborhood and his own family. He wrote this, he said, Some measure of guilt seems to be my inescapable lot, living in an interconnected world. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Indeed, when any of us reflects on the brute fact of being alive and taking up space on this planet, consuming resources that could have met some other more worthy need, we may be led to feel guilt about the very fact of our existence. We know now so much, and we can do so little. And it leaves some with this sense of guilt as a result. For some, it is not being enough. For others, it's not doing enough. My question is, when is saying sorry enough? One of the places that guilt is most prevalent now is actually in the public square. Most prosperous nations or most prosperous peoples in this world are asked now to apologize for their past. There's some basis for that. No prosperous people have got a blameless past and a lot of them have got a pretty mixed past to say the least. And all of that has to be rectified and it's beyond the scope of the time we've got now to get into that. But in one nation... Now, for over 10 years, they have National Sorry Day, where the dominant people are to apologize and write in sorry books their apologies for the actions of previous generations on those who are a minority and have been oppressed. It's a big subject, but my question is just this. When there's no way of atonement, when finding forgiveness is now impossible because we've done away with God, then when, is, when do you stop saying sorry? When is saying sorry enough? Is it after a year or two years or five years or 20 years? 
Any of you in a close relationship will know that at some point, sorry has to be met with, that's okay. Otherwise, and if I had to wake my wife every morning, take her a cup of tea with the words, I'm sorry, it would affect our relationship in ways that I promise you are not good. How does this affect us? Let me just very quickly, a couple of bullets. It affects the way we think about ourselves. This is what I'm touching on here. It's one thing to acknowledge that we failed at something. I think that's important. But it's another to think of oneself as a failure with no hope of change. Feeling guilty can also simply lead to an inability to concentrate. It can reduce the output of a city. Back to Burglas, the psychologist. He said it takes a ton of psychic energy to keep feelings of guilt suppressed. It can sabotage our success. Feelings of guilt can really get you down on yourself. So much so that you can end up denying yourselves an award, prize or achievement simply as a small price to pay to compensate for how you're feeling. It can spoil our friendships. It's hard to be vulnerable when you're feeling guilty because when you're guilty, you do not want to be vulnerable. And any friendship that's going to go the distance has vulnerability as part of it. It can make you sick. It's a powerful emotion, and powerful emotions affect us physically and not just emotionally or psychologically. Guilt is still prevalent right across this city. So what do we do? Well, there was one young man who found an answer to this. His name was John. Born in 1725. A wayward teenager, father at sea, mother had died early. He was then press-ganged into the Navy. He became known as the rebel on board. He was known for the obscenity of his language, even amongst sailors. He was known for the obscenity of his language. In fact, he used to make up new words and his hatred of authority. He later said it was only God who prevented him from killing the captain or the captain killing him. Subsequently, in later life, he became captain of a slave ship and deeply complicit with all the horrific activity that we are now familiar with. One night, he was in a particularly rough storm, and the guy literally standing next to him had just been washed overboard to his certain death. And he tied himself to the ship wheel. And for 11 hours in the storm, he found himself thinking about his life and the fact that he'd simply not lived the sort of life that he wanted to. And he ended up crying out to God for mercy. He wrote a hymn that has gone far beyond the slave trade in the 18th century. It celebrates the fact that you and I can be free from the past. And it still resonates today. It resonates enough that people estimate that it's performed 10 million times annually and has appeared on over 11,000 albums because it's speaking of a universal need. It's been performed by Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, and even Elvis Presley. 
And actually, uh, the, uh, Obama also sang it at a funeral uh, a while ago, you may remember. The name of the author of that song? John Newton. The song? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he wrote. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Twas grace, he said, that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Why is it that all of us know those words and all of us know that tune and some of you even want to sing it right now? Because it still speaks today of the freedom that we hope for. And this song reveals some important things about guilt. This song reminds us that you cannot just magic wrongdoing away. You can't try and shrug it off and ignore it. You can't try and will it away. You cannot even try and, well, you can try and repress it, but it won't work. It will come back to bite you in some other form. And the Christian understanding says that guilt comes from real acts that need to be paid for. John Newton, when he wrote that song, understood that, the Jewish, that in the Jewish moral world from which Christianity grew, that the burden of sin was always discharged by a sacrifice, by the shedding of blood. And that's why in the New Testament, the death of Jesus Christ becomes so pivotal, central to the whole story. He gives his life so that we can sing amazing grace. So that we do not need to carry our sense of not being enough or not having done enough anymore. Grace is so that you and I can say sorry and that is enough. As the good book says, if we confess our sins, our sins of commission, I have not done what I should. And our sins of omission, I have not been all that I could. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Maybe the band could come back, please. One of the most memorable baptismal services that, uh, that I have personally was when we baptized a young lady by the name of Isabel. Isabel had started coming to Christ Church as a student. She said she came and she sat at the back. And she said that in this atmosphere of love, love for God and love for one another, so that she would weep her way whilst everyone else was singing. We'd stand and sing, she would sit and weep. And she said, I wept because I longed to feel acceptable and I didn't. But she said, coming into this atmosphere on a regular basis, she said, slowly started to change me. And I found my thinking started to change. And I started to realize that I was loved and that I was accepted. And as this permeated my whole being, she said, I wanted to give my life to the one who loved me so much. And so we stood on this stage and I got, had the privilege of interviewing Isabel and hearing her story of grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's available to every person here. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It is here. 
for the city of London. It is here for the capital of the UK. It is here for every city. It is here for every man, woman, and child. Receive grace today. That is why we work for the spiritual renewal of the city. Let's stand together. Rich, come and lead. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.